your amazing love and grace towards us. And I just pray as we open up your word, Father, and begin to look at a portion of a text from the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, may the truths and the realities of what you are communicating to us will speak in such a manner that it will liberate us from either living a legalistic approach to Christian faith or maybe a, a more lackadaisical, licensed approach. We'll get a real understanding of the relationship between yourself, Lord, and your law and what Jesus, you came to do for us. And I pray today that this understanding will bring freedom in our lives, will bring great joy, great hope, and great blessing. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. A Jewish rabbi by the name of Jacob Neusner, in his book, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. Matter of fact, he's quite an Old Testament scholar. He's written a whole bunch of books, passed away in 2016. And part of this conversation was recorded in Newsweek, so obviously well-known in the Jewish community. He said that if he would have met Jesus 2,000 years ago, this is how he imagines the conversation to have gone. This is very... Very fascinating. He says, I can see myself not only meeting and arguing with Jesus. By the way, Jewish people like to argue. I'm not saying this, but our tour guide said if there's three Jewish people, there's three opinions. So, you know, that's what she told us. I'm just quoting her. Uh, She basically, and so he said he would be uh, arguing with Jesus, challenging him on the basis of what he calls our shared Torah. Now, the Torah is not only the Old Testament, it can also be just the first five books, but in this case, he's speaking of the Old Testament. He says, I can also imagine myself saying, friend, you go your way, I'll go mine, I wish you well without me. Wow. Yours is not the Torah of Moses, and all I have from God and all I ever need from God is that one Torah of Moses. We would meet, we would argue, we would part friends, but we would part. He would have gone his way to Jerusalem and the place He believed God had prepared for him, and I would have gone my way home to my wife, my children, my dog, and my garden. He would have gone his way to glory, I on my way to my duties and responsibilities. Only the Torah of God is the word of God. I think Christianity, beginning with Jesus, took a wrong turn in abandoning the Torah. And by the truth of Torah, much of what Jesus said is wrong. By the criteria of Torah... Israel's religion in the time of Jesus was authentic, faithful, not requiring reform or renewal, demanding only faith and loyalty to God and the sanctification of life through carrying out God's will. Jesus and his disciples took one path and we another, and I do not believe that God would want it any other way. Wow, that's a very interesting statement. Now, first of all, I would beg to differ with Jacob Neusner because... He was not living in the hour that Jesus lived. He was only hearing reports. But can you imagine living in the day of Jesus and all these amazing miracles are happening? Would Jacob Neusner find himself as one of the Pharisees and scribes arguing with Jesus? I don't think this would just be a little minor argument. As a matter of fact, when I'm reading the New Testament, I think there's far more going on than we realize here. Now, there have always been critics of Jesus. There's critics in our time. There were critics in his time. There were critics in how Jesus was interpreting the Torah. But I say it this way. If Jesus is who he is and says he is, which I believe he is, I believe he's God in the flesh, it's pretty difficult to say to the author of the book, I disagree with your interpretation. 
And that's basically what this rabbi is doing. And what Jesus is trying to do is enlighten these guys that you may have misunderstood what I've been trying to communicate, and I'm here to straighten you guys out and give you the correct insight and understanding of Torah. So what was Jesus' understanding of the law? Well, Rabbi Neusner raises the same issue his forefathers did as they challenged Jesus. Jesus, however, answers his criticism and gives each of us a proper view regarding the Torah or the law of God. And so I, I want to look at probably one of the most misunderstood texts of the Bible, which has led many to, <clears throat> some at least, to reject Christianity. For some, I think it's created extremes in our understanding as Christians, because I think there's really, you know, two, I think, extreme viewpoints on the law. There's the first group who, you know, when they see the law of God, they begin to you know, focus in and say, we've got to keep these laws, and they become, they, they start interpreting in a very rigid, what we would call a legalistic way. And how many know that a lot, of, a lot of people in Christian church, when we start to do something and others aren't doing what we think they should be doing, what's the response? We usually begin to judge people. Isn't that true? We, we begin to evaluate and say, hey, they're not doing this right. They should be doing it the way I understand the scriptures to be teaching. And so we can develop a form of legalism which ultimately leads to us judging people's behavior. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that's always wrong to judge, but I am saying that there's times when we've over-understood the Scriptures, we're a little bit rigid in our understanding, and it creates a really legalistic approach to Christianity. And I think the church in the past has really struggled with that, and I think there are individuals today still struggling with that. But I think the greater problem today is on the other side where we have understood the grace of God to such a degree that we think that it doesn't really matter what we do. I can do anything I want and God will forgive me and therefore there's no need for the law whatsoever. And I believe that that's another wrong understanding and we would entitle that a licensed view. In other words, I'm doing my thing, thank you very much. But we need to understand the law is actually good. Actually, it's God's word. It's actually boundaries that God created to protect us. And as the book of Hebrews teaches us, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the people that are trying to observe the law. And that's you and I, not just the Jewish people, but all of us. When we read the scriptures, we struggle sometimes with obeying what the law has to say, and particularly if we don't have God's Spirit in operation in our lives. So I want to take a look today at really two elements we need to understand in regards to our relationship to Christ and the law, And the first one is simply that Christ fulfilled the law. In other words, that in Christ the law is fulfilled for us by him. In other words, Jesus is doing something for us that will empower us in a way we could never have done apart from him. And that's what I want to begin by looking at this morning. So the law was not an end in itself. That's what we need to understand. We do not worship the law. Sometimes I wonder if some of the Jewish people are actually worshiping the law rather than the person who gave them the law. And that's a big problem. You know, we get so enamored with what's being said that we forget the person behind the words. We don't think we do, but we actually do. The law had a certain purpose in mind, and I think many people are confused by it. Paul, in writing to the, in, to the Romans, begins to state it. And he says there in chapter 3 and verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. We have to stop there and say, who was under the law? 
The answer is the Jewish people. They had the law given to them by God on Mount Sinai. They were under the law. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So in other words, what God's law was, was to help us recognize right from wrong. Now, if we just leave it to culture, how many know we got a problem? Anybody discovered that yet? Because everybody has an idea about what's right, and everybody has a different idea about what's wrong. How many have discovered that? We're not all agreeing as to what's right and what's wrong. But the Bible does give us very clear lines as to what's right and what is wrong. Then it goes on to say, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sights by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So what the law is doing is not so much giving us a way that we can be in a right relationship with God, as much as that it's revealing to us what's our problem. In other words, the Bible or the Word of God or the Old Testament or the law is showing what is good and what isn't good. It's giving us clear lines of right and wrong. It's giving us the healthy boundaries on how we need to live. And it's making us conscious when we don't do those things. We've become aware that we're failing in those things. Now, haven't you noticed that and maybe some of you don't have this experience because maybe you grew up in a Christian home and your whole memory is maybe walking with God. But before I was a Christian, I had no consciousness of sin. I didn't think that I was a bad person. I didn't walk around thinking, well, I'm such a bad guy. As a matter of fact, when I meet people, the average person is going to tell you I'm okay. You know, I'm not as bad as somebody else. I'm actually an okay person. And that's the way people see themselves. Isn't that true? You know, and our culture says that. Everybody's okay. We're all okay. There's no problems, you know. So it's, you know, they don't even believe in sin. What we people are dealing with today is the consequences of sin. And what we really want is to sin but not experience the consequences. Isn't that kind of what the culture wants today? Absolutely. So if we can get eliminate those consequences, we would just happily enjoy our sin. And yet the law is revealing to us what is unhealthy for humanity and how that has a negative impact on what's going on in our lives. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So now, what he's saying here is that to be in a right, righteousness is actually having a right standing or relationship with God. And so he's saying that now there's something that's aside from the Torah, aside from the Old Testament, but has been told in the Torah and has been told through the prophets of a righteousness, a way to be in right relationship with God apart from just keeping the law. Okay, that's what he's making statement there. Then verse 22 says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. In other words, God is saying to us, Look, here's the way that you and I get into a right relationship with me. It's through the person of Christ. And Jesus himself said it. There's no other way. He says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf that makes you and I come into a right relationship with God. How many think that's amazing? It's not something you and I can do, it's something he did for us. And as you and I put our faith in Christ and we put our faith in what he did for us, that he died on a cross, that he died for our sins, and that he rose again demonstrating that he had power over sin and death, that you and I can actually experience freedom from sin and its penalty, and you and I can have life in Christ, and you and I can have eternal life, and that we're going to live with God apart from sin and all of its consequences. How many think that's an amazing 
good news. It's called the gospel. And that's what we're, you know, trying to communicate to people. We have this amazing message. And it's no different. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, Jew by race, or a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. The same gospel applies to both groups of people. So, what are the misunderstandings? What are people struggling with in relationship to the law? Well, first of all, we see that no one becomes righteous by observing or doing the law. In other words, you'll never get right with God by simply obeying everything God tells you to do. And the reason being is because none of us can do it. Isn't that problematic? You know, God can say, "Here's this is good for you, and you go, yeah, I know, but I, I, I don't want to do that. You know, I'm matter of fact, Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray, and everyone has gone his own way. There's not one of us that has done good. You know, we've messed up at some point. Sometimes we mess up ignorantly. Sometimes we just do the wrong thing. We're not even thinking about it. And we hurt someone else. Wow, I sinned. I didn't even realize I was doing it. You know, sometimes we purposely sin. Sometimes we go, I really want to do this. I don't really care what God has to say. This is what I want. I'm going to do it. And we purposely sin against God's law. And eventually, consequences come into our lives as a result of that activity in our lives. So then what is really the purpose of the law? It's to bring about a recognition and an awareness of sin. We've already read that. We become conscious of sin. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says it this way, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. In other words... Everybody sinned, but we're not always aware of it. We're not always conscious of it. But the moment we get introduced to what's right and wrong, once we understand God's standard, then we realize, oh, I'm doing the wrong thing. Isn't that true? And even children, they grow up. A lot of times they can still be doing the wrong thing. They're just unaware that they're doing the wrong thing. And then they're instructed and then they realize, no, I can't do that. That's wrong. And that's what the purpose of the law is to instruct what's right and what's wrong. The law's ultimate purpose is to bring us to Christ. In Galatians, he says, so the law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian or schoolmaster. In other words, what the law was doing is bringing us really to the end of ourselves. The law was teaching us what God's standard was, and we were all messing up in it, and finally Christ came. And, you know, we could think of it historically, Christ came at a point in time. But isn't it true in our lives that Christ came to us when we got to the end of ourselves, when we recognized, you know, that we were sinners? You know, it's a journey to come to that discovery we're a sinner. (laughs) You know, because a lot of times we've been playing this mental gymnastics game where we've been rationalizing in our head that we're okay. And how many know if you think you're okay, you don't need a Savior? And that's one of the biggest problems in our society today. If you live a self-satisfied life, there's really no recognition of a need for God in your life. And I see most of the people in our culture today living a life where they feel like there's really no need for God because they're living, in their minds, a self-satisfied life. And that's unfortunate. But when the law really takes hold in a person's life, and when life isn't working correctly, and when we start realizing we got a problem, and when we start realizing our lives are broken, and we start realizing there's consequences to our bad decisions, and our life is unmanageable and out of control, and eventually we turn to our friends and they can't help us, and we turn to a lot of other things and it's not helping us, and finally we come to that desperation state where we turn to God and we cry out for God's mercy, and and Christ is now being revealed to us, and we are set free free from our sins. How powerful is that? So, in the person and work of Christ, we find here in the book of Matthew this culmination. This is what Jesus said about the law, verse 17. 
He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what I'm really focusing in on today is a righteousness that surpasses what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day were actually trying to explain. Now, how many know that when Jesus said this, this was a shocking statement? And you know why? Because the average Jewish person did not consider themselves, you know, highly religious. I mean, they looked up to the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the religious people. And Jesus said, if you're not better than those guys, you're not making it. And they all thought to themselves, well, then there's no hope for us. Look, these are the good guys. What's going to happen to the rest of us, right? If they can't pull it off, where are we going to end up? And so the Pharisees, you know, did not appreciate some of the comments Jesus was making and the teachers of the law. They were growing more and more angry with him because their understanding of Torah and Jesus' communication and interpretation of Torah were totally different. And how many know that when you have a different understanding, it does create a little problem? Now let me give you an idea. In their minds, they saw Jesus as constantly in violation of the law of God. And basically, it was built in on their interpretation of that law. And I think, you know, you and I can become very pharisaical too by uh, trying to impose our understanding on the Word of God when it's not the right understanding. When people aren't living up to our standard, we have a tendency to look down on them. And that's what it means to become a legalist or a Pharisee. Now, these religious leaders' uh, understanding of God's law were actually obscuring or hiding the real meaning and intent of God's law. The Pharisees were caught up and what we would call minutia. You say, what's minutia? That's the detailed stuff of the law. They had actually categorized the Old Testament into 613 observances. Now, how many would think there'd be, you know, if you were in a synagogue right now, and we have to live, live out 613 observances, so I could be saying, well, 587, this is what you need to do, 589, 588, 600, you know, I could be going talking about number one, number eight, you know, we could go down. How many go, man, how could you keep it straight in your mind? I got to walk out of this place, and I got to observe 613 things. You'd be going, this is really not fun. You can appreciate that, Right? So here's Jesus, you know, he's going, these guys are so confusing people. People have no idea how to get close to God. And these guys are acting like they've got it all together. So how do you know? You know, most rules generally in life are created to address a particular situation. Does anybody know that? That's why they're created. But rules don't change people's hearts and attitudes. Has anybody discovered that yet? Matter of fact, rules may protect people if they're listened to, but rules will not change the inner motivation of the heart. So all the rules in the world is not what's going to change what's going on on the inside. And that's huge because Jesus is now going to focus in on the inside stuff. You see, they were hung up on minutia. Jesus said, your problem is that you guys, you know, basically are straining at a gnat and you swallow camels. 
Now, we know that that's hyperbole. But what he was basically saying is you guys are focusing in on the details of, of some minutia part, of some obscure, one of your 613 rules, and meanwhile, you have no compassion for people in need. And you're missing the heart of the, of the real intent of God's law, which was what? To love God and love people, and yet you guys aren't seeing that. Now, one of the areas that they really got into a major confrontation over was in the understanding of the Sabbath. And I think this is an important point. Matter of fact, Jesus, Matthew tells us this in his gospel. He says, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. This is Jesus now. And a man with a shriveled hand was there and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. Notice their motivation. They want to get him. They said to him, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, in their minds, why would they even think that Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath would be unlawful in the Torah? Because in their mind, that's work. That's their interpretation of how the Sabbath needs to be observed. Okay, you follow this? So here's what Jesus says to them. Well, listen, if you have a sheep and he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, Will you not take hold of it and lift it up? In other words, can you imagine you're on your way to the synagogue and your stupid sheep falls into the pit and it's bleeding, bleeding away, and you're going, i got to do something. This sheep is driving me nuts. You reach your hand down, pull them out of the pit, put them on its, you know. And Jesus goes, you do that. You wouldn't consider that work. You would just think that's something that needs to be done. Then he goes on, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So now Jesus is interpreting the law in the right way. I think they have had the wrong understanding. Then he goes on. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. So Jesus is now healing on the Sabbath. Now notice what happens when you are a Pharisee. Notice what's happened when you have a certain close-minded interpretation of a text of Scripture and you feel like people are not doing what you want them to do, notice their response. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So how many are beginning to say, that's, that's an amazing point, isn't it? So what does the law do? If you are a keeper of the law like this with the wrong interpretation and people don't follow along, what it produces inside of you is judgment and anger, which is actually the spirit of murder. And in this case, they wanted to kill Jesus because they saw him as a troublemaker. Now, how many know the end result of our faith is love? You can tell if you have a genuine faith in God because what you should be happening in your life is you're moving towards a more compassionate, loving, forgiving heart towards people. Now, you can see that the Pharisees, that's not the direction they were moving in at all. They were, they were very cynical, they were very self-righteous, and they were very critical. Okay. Notice what Jesus says to them in another place, and Mark picks it up in his gospel. He said, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's very important. See, he's giving a different interpretation. See, in their minds, they thought, no, no, the Sabbath is made so that you would worship God and rest, and that's it. Jesus said, no, 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 the Sabbath was made so that man would have an opportunity to worship and rest. And he said, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I love what F.F. Bruce writes. He says, therefore, any action which prompted man's rest, relief, and general well-being was permissible on the Sabbath. 
It was not merely permissible on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the most appropriate day for its performance because its performance so signally promoted God's purposes in instituting the Sabbath. Jesus appears to have cured people by preference on the Sabbath day because such action honored that day. Now, how many of you kind of noticed that? You know, Jesus was always healing on the Sabbath. How many of you noticed he's doing that a lot? And, I, you know, I, I used to, th- when I was younger, this was my thinking. Jesus, you need a Dale Carnegie course. Because this is not how you win people and influence people. You know, right? You're, you're ticking these guys off. You know, there's six other days. You could have been healing on those days, but you tended to do this, and you know that it was annoying them, and you did it anyways. And you go, well, why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus is making a point. He's pointing out to them, you have a wrong understanding, and you're creating misunderstanding in the minds and hearts of people as to the nature of God. You see that? So God is going to straighten them out. So the author of the Torah came down in person and began to correct the interpretation. And you know what he got for his troubles? Crucified. That's what he got. Because it's amazing how we can get so locked into our understanding that we think we're right and everybody else is wrong. Well, God comes along and says, no, this is the way you need to see it. We notice in our text that Jesus came, it says, to fulfill the law. That's an interesting statement. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he says, he says I'm not going to, anything's going to disappear until everything is accomplished. Now, New Testament scholar R.T. Francis, among the many nuances suggested for the word plerusa in Greek, that's the word that we're translating fulfilled. He says, are the main, these are some options. To accomplish. In other words, Jesus said, I've come to accomplish the law. I've come to obey the law. He says, I've come to bring it to its full meaning. I've come to bring it to its, its, its actual end. You see that idea? Jesus is coming so that the goal of the law can actually be realized. The law was actually leading us to a destination. The law is like a road. It's bringing us to a place. And the place is actually the person of Christ. That's what people weren't getting in his day. That's what we need to understand. The purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ. Actually, Jesus, Craig Bloomberg, another New Testament scholar, says, didn't come to contradict the law, but neither is he preserving it unchanged. He's coming to bring the law to its intended goal. That's very fascinating. That's different, isn't it? Have you thought about that? He's, He's willing to say, this is why the law was given, and it's to bring us to this point. So here Paul now, in Romans 10, he's talking about having this right relationship with God. And the Jewish people believe that being righteous came as a result of obeying the law. And the problem was the people couldn't do it. The law is good. The people, are, they can't keep it. And so God knows that. And he comes along and says, no, I'm going to give you the power to do it. I'm going to give you the power to fulfill the purpose of the law, which is really to, to do what? Well, we're going to see that in a moment. It's actually to love God and to love people. That's what the law's purpose is, ultimately. And we'll see that in a moment. I love this little poetic stanza. It goes like this. To run and work the law commands, yet gave me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. In other words, what he's saying here is that the good news about Jesus gives us the power to do the right thing. Whereas the law told us what the right thing was, 
but it didn't get didn't have any life in it. It just it just gave us the instructions. Big difference, isn't it? I think there's a huge difference. We need to understand that. Romans chapter 10, this is Paul writing again. And remember, he was a Pharisee. He understands this better than most people. He was doing the very thing he's talking about. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination, or he's the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, the end of the law, the purpose of the law, is to put you and I in a right standing with God. But the problem was, you and I couldn't do it. So he's basically saying here, Christ is the end of the law, and so what the law does is show that you and I can't do it, and eventually helps us to realize we need help. How many know that that takes humility on our part? It takes a brokenness to say, you know, I can't do this anymore. I need God's help. And the moment we come to that place where we're no longer self-satisfied, we end up finding that we need a Savior, we actually come to the person who can save us, and that's Christ. And that's the purpose of the law. So let me move on here. So how did Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he fulfilled it in his life. Do you realize that Jesus was born under the law? He was a Jew. He kept the law in every area of his life perfectly. He never broke the law. He lived a sinless life. I mean, that's amazing. Because he was, he was, you go, yeah, he's God. Yeah, but he became a man. And he did this in his humanity. At least on three occasions, at his baptism, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and just prior to his death, he heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. God was pleased. He, he was affirming and endorsing the life of Jesus as a perfect life. He fulfilled the law in his life. He fulfilled it in his ministry. He fulfilled it where he was born. He fulfilled it as a sacrifice to deal with the sins of the world. And then it's, we see that throughout the gospel, especially Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus' whole life as a fulfillment of the law. Listen to what he said. Speaking of Mary, she'll give birth to a son here and give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to do what? Fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. In other words, this is Jesus fulfilling what God has for him to do. He's fulfilling the law. And then it goes on, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know what the great tragedy in that hour was when Jesus was there talking to a people that really knew the Torah was simply this. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me. In other words, they're studying the scriptures thinking they've got life from the scriptures, but the scriptures are actually pointing to a person. And until you get to the person, all the studying in the world isn't going to do you an ounce of good. You've got to get to the end. And the end is pointing you somewhere. It's pointing you to this person. And Jesus said, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. How many think it's kind of a sad thing? You know, an author writes a book. We get so enamored in the book, we could care less about the author. Well, the book is only a product of the author. Actually, it should bring us back to the author. And that's what Jesus is telling them. And you know, Paul says it this way. The problem with the Jewish people, is that they're studying the scriptures, but there's a veil over their eyes. You know, every time they're reading it, they don't get it. 
And the moment they come to Christ, the veil is lifted. Isn't that an amazing thing? And we have a young person in our church, and she's Jewish. And she said to me, you know, when I gave my life to Christ, she goes, then it all hit me. It's all resonating. Everything I said all of my life, everything we say as Jewish people, we're actually talking about Joshua, 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 Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. Who's that? That's Jesus. They're actually talking about him all the time, but they're just blinded to who this person really is. Isn't that amazing? But now it's all like it's like all the bells and whistles are going off, you know. It's powerful. Do you know when Jesus died, he satisfied the demands of the broken law and he released some wonderful changes that were going to transpire in our relationship between ourselves and God. The Old Testament showed how a broken relationship could only be restored through sacrifice. When you read the Old Testament, there's all of these sacrifices going on. The Old Testament was really a shadow for a a more permanent reality, which is found in the person of Christ. The old covenant was inadequate, not because the law was bad, but because the people couldn't keep it. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. And you know what's really amazing? That we've just come back from Israel, and and Patty and I had the privilege of seeing something we had never seen before. We couldn't have the whole group see it because there was only room for 18 people, and there were already people there, but our guide knew that we had gone through the rabbinical tunnels before, and she said, would you like to see a 3D presentation of what the temple was like in the day of Herod? And I said, we'd love to. So Patty and I scooched out and we went and saw this 3D presentation. And let me tell you something, it was really amazing. You know, you got a 3D look and you got to see the temple and it was a 360 degree chair. And you could go around the chair in circles and you were in the temple and you could see everything around you. It's really amazing. You know, I had these 3D glasses on. It looked like you were right there and you were watching everything and the Levites were on the stairs and they were playing their horns. And I mean, you couldn't hear that because we didn't have sound, but you could see all that was going on there. And then the, the scene that was the most moving to me was when we got just before the holy place and there was a curtain. And I'm telling you, this is like 30 feet high, 10 meters, 30 feet high. You know, the curtain is way up top there and you could see that curtain that was keeping people from going into the holy place. And then there was another curtain beyond that that was keeping them from the holiest of all. And the holiest of all was a place that only once a year the high priest could enter into, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Now think about it. The whole time we're on this trip, we're hearing our guy tell us over and over again, and I knew all of this stuff because I've been studying this, and you know this whole idea that the closer you got to Jerusalem, which is the holy city, the more... That, that, that's the more sacred place. It's all about proximity. And so if you're living in Galilee, which is in the north, you're not close to God as if you're a Judean living in the south in near the holy city. But if you live in Jerusalem, that's an amazing thing. But if you're a Levite, you're actually living in the temple, which is an amazing thing. And can you imagine once a year, one priest, a high priest, could go into the very holiest place and actually meet with Almighty God, but not without a sacrifice. And yet the Bible tells us that on the day that Jesus died, something supernatural and powerful happened. That curtain that I was looking at and I was imagining in my mind was torn from the top right down to the bottom. And the Bible says now a new and a living way has been made so that you and I can enter into that holy of holy place and begin to fellowship and have access to Almighty God. Wow, is that ever amazing? 
And we no longer have to go on the western wall hoping to get as close as we possibly can towards where the temple was proximity was considered. And all of these Jewish people are praying and trying to get as close as they can to Almighty God by physical proximity. But you and I come into the presence of God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. That was an amazing thing. So even though we're not in the Holy Land, my brothers and sisters, we are in the holy place, and that's even greater. We're in the presence of Almighty God, and we have access, and not only access, we can come with confidence before this holy God, even though we feel a great need for mercy in our life. And the Bible says we can come boldly to the throne of grace to seek mercy and grace to help us in our time of need because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Wow. Is that ever exciting? Is that ever exciting? But let me move on here and just point out another thing. What about all these ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament? I, I, I did that. You know, this, what, another wonderful aspect is the emergence of Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. We don't have to keep religious rituals. Isn't that beautiful? You know, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. i got to stop for a minute. How many sins did God forgive you from? How about your future ones? Present ones? Past ones? All of them. Is that amazing? We've got to focus on that. You know, some of us walk around this room, you know, we're, we're conscious of what we did in the past. Folks, forgiven. Some of you are worried about, you know, I'm having struggles right now in in my life. I'm struggling with things in my life. Listen, look to Christ. There's a power there. You are forgiven. Same thing with the future. He's going to, if you're walking with him, it's an amazing thing that's happening. Then he goes on to say, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Listen, we transgressed the law of God. This is a legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. There was a trans, you know, we were, we were transgressing against our creator and our maker, our God. And there was a legal documentation, and it says, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. That a beautiful thing. So all of the charges against you have been nailed to the cross. I love that. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's speaking of all of the spiritual realms of darkness, all Satan and all of his principalities and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. You know, I picked on Jordan uh, Resta. Some of you know him. You know, he came to Israel with us. It was so, it was so classical. First morning, I said, hey, Jordan, you got to try this. I mean, they're going to have this guy cooking this omelet. So he, him and I are there. We're in line. It's his turn. He says, I'll have ham and cheese. <laughs> Some of you are catching this. Let, 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 let me explain. For the rest of you, I don't get what he's... First of all, we're in Israel. And Israeli, Israelis do not mix dairy products with meat. They're on a separate meal. Okay? Number two, they don't eat pig. It's not kosher. So when Jordan walks up and orders a ham and cheese omelet, the poor guy that's cooking, I could see his face. He's like... He didn't know how to respond. He finally said, this is not lawful in this country. 
Jordan's looking at him like, huh? Like, he, he was clueless. It was, it was so classic. I mean, you had to be there. And that's what I mean. This guy was judging him by what he was about to eat. Can you see it? But in Christ, you and I can come before what we eat and we can sanctify it and we can eat pig and we can have dairy products with our meat. Isn't that amazing? Well, wow, that's because of what Jesus did. And with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, these are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So what does that really mean? It just means that Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is our Pentecost. Jesus is my Sabbath. We need to understand it's found in a person and not keeping religious rituals and days. And we need to understand that. So how do you and I fulfill the law? We have, if you don't keep religious rituals and ceremonies, it's done by yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to work in our lives. And therefore it says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Not in him, in us. We meet the righteous requirements of God because in Christ, he's met them for us. And now because of that, we in turn are meeting those righteous requirements because we're in Christ. But let me move on here real quickly. That in Christ we become righteous. This righteousness that surpasses the miscued understanding of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes. They believed that they were correctly keeping the law and that in keeping the law, as they understood it, they were righteous. And as sincere as they were, they were sincerely wrong. They were focused on externals. They were concerned about outward appearances rather than a genuine heart towards God. And in chapter 5, we're going to see that. They were more concerned, you know, about the, the external physical acts where Jesus says, listen, you know what? You can actually keep the letter of the law but violate the spirit of it. How many know that's true? You could say, you know what, I'm not committing adultery, but if you got lust in your mind towards that person, you are violating the law. You see how Jesus gets into this. You know, the fact that you and I say, well, I'm not killing that person, but if you have hatred and anger and unforgiveness in your heart towards that person, you're murdering that person in your heart. And Jesus is saying the only way to be free from these kind of strongholds in our lives is that you and I come to Christ and allow his spirit to work within us. Jesus pointed out that the sum of the law is in loving God and and loving people, not the 613 regulations that the Pharisees had categorized from the Old Testament. I love that. As a matter of fact, when he was tested with this question on the law, the teacher, he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your mind. And the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, you know, I can say to you today, don't worry about the 613 ordinances. Just go out there and love God and love people. How simple is that? And you know what? If you have Christ in you, you can do it. And if you don't have Christ in you, you're going to struggle. That's the way it works. That's as simple as I can make it. You know what the problem of the Pharisees were? Their focus 
was not on God, but on themselves. They were proud of their ability to do the right thing. They were criticized by Jesus because unconsciously they were hypocrites. They kept externals of the law, but missed the essence of it. They followed the letter, but missed the spirit. And, you know, and the problem is, and this is the problem that all of us have, and I've said it earlier, they never saw themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. They lived a self-satisfied life. And whenever we do that, we cannot receive what we need. As a matter of fact, we hear that parable that Jesus said. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. How many can sense a lot of self-righteous behavior right here? Man, aren't I a good God, good guy, God? Aren't I terrific, God? Aren't you glad you have me on your team? You know? Well, listen to the other guy. The tax collector, who is noted being a sinner, stood up at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know what? The, the, the role of the law should bring about brokenness, not self-righteousness. <sighs> Of all the Old Test, all of the Old Testament remains normative and relevant for Jesus' followers, but none of it can rightly be interpreted until one understands how it has been fulfilled in Christ. See, when we're reading the Bible, we have to have what we call Christological lenses. We have to see it through the person of Christ. Every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of Jesus' person, ministry, and the changes introduced by the new covenant he inaugurated. What the law tried to do by rest- a restraining power from without. The gospel does by an inspiring power from within. So I'm going to have a stand as we close this morning. And you know, I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking, okay, this is great. I'm explaining to them the distinction between what Jesus meant. I'm not come to destroy it, but I've come to fulfill it. What does this really mean? Then he talks about having a righteousness that surpasses the rules of of these scribes and Pharisees. But so what difference does that make in my life in 20, you know... 2019. What difference does that make? I thought about that. And I I was reminded of something in my mind. And if you're Chinese today, you can straighten me out if I got this wrong. But I remembered something. That, you know, Chinese is an interesting language. Sometimes they have pictures. You've ever seen that? They have a picture? And a picture actually represents a word. And the word for righteousness in Chinese is a picture of a lamb and a man. And the man is under the lamb. In other words, when God is looking down, he sees the lamb that was shed for the man. And because of that, that man, that woman, is now considered righteous before God. So we have to be standing under the lamb. You see what happens when you and I try to fulfill the law apart from Christ? We're over here. We're not under the lamb. We are not righteous. We're not in a right standing with God. Then there's a bunch of people that are over here on the other side who are just doing their thing. They're not under the Lamb. They're not righteous. They're just sinning. And so they're going to suffer the consequences of sin. And the wages of sin has always been death. And death is simply alienation in relationships between God and between others. We're dying. Our life is falling apart. That's the consequences of sin. And so what's the invitation? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. 
I'm going to give you rest for your soul. He's inviting us to come under the Lamb. And the moment we do that, we now are in a right relationship to God. We can now say, I'm righteous. Not because of something I've done. I'm righteous because of what Christ has done for me. And my faith and trust is not in what I'm doing. It's in what Christ has done for me. And just with every head bowed here today, only you know in your heart of hearts where you're standing. And maybe you're standing, you could say, you know, Pastor, it's so great. I understand this. You've maybe explained it a little, but I understand it. I have been standing under the Lamb. I know that Jesus is my Savior. I'm trusting in Him. And I'm standing in a right relationship with Him. Maybe for others you say, you know what? I can honestly say I'm not standing there. I've been trying to do it in my own strength. And I can recognize now it's producing self-righteousness. And I want to move under the Lamb. And maybe that's you today. Just with an uplifted hand say, I want to move under the Lamb. Just raise your hand. Yeah, some of you. Maybe there's others today. You just said, you know what? I've had no interest in the Lamb. I've just been living my life. I haven't even been concerned that I'm accountable to God for my life. But you can see today the maker of heaven and earth. You're going to have to stand before him. And you want to stand under the lamb. And that's you today. Just raise your hand. We're going to pray right now as we close real quickly. So, Father, as we stand in your presence today, we've heard your call, Lord. We've, there's a distinction. You know, it's about interpreting Torah correctly. And Jesus, you came. You're the author of Torah. You've, you've explained it in the right way. And we have to embrace your interpretation of it. And I pray today that we would move. If we're not there, Father, that today by a decision of our heart and mind, we are moving and surrendering to you, our Lord and Savior. And we're moving our life to accept that what you did on the cross, dying on the cross was for our sins. And we thank you for doing that. And we recognize today that we're going to move our lives to stand before you under the Lamb. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.